Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, reading through the Bible in one year. We are on week 12, days 78 through 84. We're starting in Numbers 16 with Korah's Rebellion. It opens with a scene where Korah um, confronts Moses and Aaron and essentially thinks that they're being overly arrogant and that they think they're holier than everybody else in the congregation. Well, it seems to me that the Kohathites were already given great responsibility by the Lord, but they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted an even greater position. They wanted to go beyond their fellow Levites. Um, so are these Levites, are they the, the priests, or do they have a different function? What are the Kohathites? Well, Korah is son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. So they're connected to the Levites. But do you remember when we've had all of these senses, 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 senses throughout where you get different Levite groupings with different responsibilities? Right. Well, it seems like these individuals probably are given some level of responsibility, but they want a different status. Um so they were trying to say that everybody is holy, the Lord's with everybody, and that's partially true. Um, but in so doing, they were really seeking to elevate themselves, as Moses explains in verse uh, 10 and 11. Because these folks, they were already, they already kind of had like a special job or special uh, designation because they weren't counted in the census, Right. Well, remember, there were were different. Yeah, 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 yeah. But remember, there were the listings of the Levites with their different responsibilities. So some would carry things, that kind of thing. But but they clearly have been given some position, but they've decided to rebel against Moses. And they accuse him of exalting himself when in reality, they're just trying to exalt themselves. So they're, they're getting kind of greedy, like they've already been given a position and they just want more. Yeah. And, you know, colloquially, I don't know, how do you say that word? I think that's right. Um, We might say that they're getting too big for their britches, or in this case, too big for their priestly robes. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, So then they're, they're swallowed up. Now, is that, that's judgment on them for their... I guess, arrogance and rebellion, trying to, I don't know, exalt themselves over where God had them? Is that essentially like their main missteps? Yeah. I mean, they're rejecting the Lord and his instruction, and they're seeking to elevate themselves. They're rebelling against God's mediator, who is Moses, who's really God's representative to them. And uh, now they're going to reap the judgment. How does... God decide what he's going to, how he's going to judge these people. Like, it seems like there's just a lot of different ways. Either people get a plague or there's, you know, he will task people with just going around and randomly killing some people or the earth opens up. Is, is there something unique or uh, maybe intentional about how the punishment is dealed out for different sins here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. And I don't know that we can always get into God's mind and figure out his rationale for the kind of judgment that comes. Why not? Well, I think it's obvious, AJ. Oh, I know you're kidding. But I think very often the punishment sort of fits the crime. It's almost ironic sometimes, but 
um, when something, when some sin is committed, often the punishment is somehow related. So if you remember back to when the people were complaining about the quails and then they die with meat still in their teeth, you know, and then here there are individuals who are wanting to elevate themselves, but instead the earth opens up and they fall into it. You know, is that intentional irony in the punishment? I don't know, but certainly as we read it, it's pretty ironic, darkly ironic, really. I don't know. I don't know what to make of kind of like the second, well, not the second half, but like the ending of the chapter, because you have the event of them being punished, swallowed up by the earth, you know, that judgment from the Lord, but then the people still, whatever, misconstrue it. They're mad at Moses saying, you killed him. You did this, that you're bad. And then a plague comes on them, starts wiping them out. And then Aaron, you know, jumps in the middle of it and essentially kind of like stops it. Uh, You know, I don't know, the Lord miraculously responded to Aaron's actions and stopped the plague. I, I don't know exactly how to make sense of that. Yeah, I think we want to put this in the in the larger framework of the narratives. And if we go back just a couple of chapters, you remember that these Israelites had the opportunity to go into the promised land, but they didn't trust the Lord, and they complained, and they even said, let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. Well, now in these scenes that follow, you see people repeatedly accusing Moses of their problems or seeking to rebel against him which ultimately is a rebellion against the Lord. And even when God's judgment comes, they're not recognizing we're sinful and this is God who's enacting the judgment. And so again, they they don't really get with the program. So I think we're just seeing events unfold in a way that piles up one after the other, where they fail to trust God, they blame Moses, they get God's judgment, they blame Moses, you know, it's it's just this cycle that keeps repeating, which really sends us in a negative direction. Because the Lord says to Aaron and Moses, kind of like, get out of the way. I'm sweeping through with judgment. And it seems like on their own, kind of, or on his own, you know, Moses kind of tells Aaron, like, hey, hurry up. We need to make atonement for these people. Go run and do this. Uh, and then he ran in the midst of the assembly and the plague had begun. Um, and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Mm-hmm. Like, how would he know to do that? Why would he think to do that? Like, when the Lord says something, he makes a decree of, like, out of the way, I'm judging these people, I'm taking them out for their sin. And, and not necessarily, like, not that it's a bad thing, but it just seems like kind of like all on his own. He's like, oh, but I need to go over here and do this and this to make atonement for them. I'm going to just put myself in the middle of it. And then, you know, the Lord, I guess, responds to that positively by relenting of the plague. I just don't know what to make of all those actions in that sequence. Yeah, I would say that probably there are some details of the story that aren't included. So there's some mystery to it. But once again, if we look backwards, this is just like the situation in chapter 14, when Israel refused to enter Canaan. And Moses pleads before the Lord on their behalf, and he points out to God that, you, you know, you said you were a God who is slow to anger. You're, you're a God who will pardon the iniquity of people. 
and then God does it. And so it may just be that Moses is learning his role as a mediator. Aaron is coming to understand his responsibility as Israel's high priest and how they relate to this God who is both the one who is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, but who also will not leave the guilty unpunished. So I think they're just learning what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God. Maybe that doesn't answer all the questions, but it at least shows us that this is not the first time a situation like this has happened. It, it happened not too long ago in chapter 14. You know, it's just, it, it's interesting to think about, for me at least as a whole, it's like they see the Lord act, do things, they see punishment, they see judgment, but they misinterpret it, they respond poorly to it, they take wrong actions, then there's more judgment and punishment for it. I mean, it's, you know, they're kind of confused and stumbling, and, well, I can relate to that, <laughs> you know? Is that just me? How about you, Aaron? You ever feel confused and stumbly? Oh, yeah, absolutely, all the time. And I think sometimes it can be hypercritical of the people we read about in Israel here, and maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should see ourselves in them and, and actually relate to them. Right. Uh, but then I think the next step, of course, is to say, well, then what's the solution here, you know? Um, am I doomed to this same sort of judgment of God? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, Jesus has paved the way uh, by uh, taking God's wrath on our behalf, and he remains faithful to us even when we're faithless to him. We're given the spirit of God that directs us. So all, all in all, I mean, I think we can relate, but then we also can look at it and say, we, we are so grateful for uh, Jesus and the spirit that guides us as we stumble around. The more I've read through this, the more I kind of see myself in the Israelites, I guess, stupidity or whatever. Or like initially it might be like, oh my gosh, you're so dumb. How could they do that? But then like kind of in the same way, I'm like, oh yeah, I've done stuff like that in my life <laughs> where I've, you know, it's been obvious and then you blow it or something. It's like, mm -hmm. I I kind of do take it as that, like the Israelite people are kind of a, you know, a good representation of human nature kind of and if we look or try to see it we can see a lot of them in ourselves i think yeah and as paul wrote in first corinthians 10 these things happened to them but they were written down for our instruction so we need to pay attention i'm just gonna kind of hop skip and jump over to numbers 20. um one thing that i found very interesting so we have the people out in the desert, again, unhappy, quarreling. They have no water. You know, they're like, we're, you brought us out here. We're perishing. We were better off before. Uh, kind of a similar sentiment that they've shared many times. So the Lord's going to provide water for them out of the rock. And he gives instruction to Moses of how to do it. And... This I had I had to read this and kind of reread it and then read the footnotes on it because I, I was trying to understand exactly what happened and what went wrong, but uh, it seems like he Moses was just supposed to speak to the rock essentially is what the Lord had told him, and <laughs> I mean Moses messes up, but on the same in the same vein I can relate with Moses because he's like. 
here's some water for you, you rebels. Like, he's frustrated with these people, obviously. I mean, they seem like a real pain of a type of people to lead. And his it seems like his frustration gets to him, and he gets angry in combination with not following the Lord's instruction to a T. And that's what causes him to, I guess, forfeit his his ability to go into the promised land. How, do, how did you take that, well, AJ? chapter 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That seems key into why they're, they're punished, what they did wrong. Something about unbelief. Yeah, I mean, I would want us to begin by taking our clues from from the exact language in the text, right? So in 27, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. So Moses has just received a direct command from the Lord. More than that, it's a command that's to be obeyed publicly so that individuals can see God's power once again. So this echoes with language from uh, the, the plagues in the Exodus accounts, where God would act through Moses to display his glory to Pharaoh, who didn't believe in God's glory. While now Moses is supposed to do that for Israel, who's complaining and grumbling against God. And We've just read texts where Israel doesn't relate to Moses as God's representative, as they should. Well, now Moses ought to, as God's representative, reveal God to them through speaking to this rock. Instead, in his anger, he rebukes them, and then he strikes the rock. And God's response is, um, you didn't trust me to demonstrate my holiness or to show my glory, we might say. So he didn't, he didn't believe God's way was best here. And as a result, he, like Israel before him, is going to receive judgment for not obeying the word of the Lord. So I think that's fundamentally what, what we would consider in, in these verses. Now, moving forward Whoa. To, to what? <clears throat> connecting to the <clears throat> New Testament. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so we need to then connect this text to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, here, Paul is dealing with a big issue, but he appeals to a situation where he's describing Israel as individuals who all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. And that includes Moses. Um, so I think it's a significant connection here that maybe we won't be able to talk to or talk about until we get to first Corinthians 10. But once again, even Moses is not enough in himself to ensure God's blessing. Um, he, he'll receive God's judgment, you know, at the end of his life, he's going to die. And the narrator will note that his eyes were bright. Like he had good health and God killed him is, is part of his judgment. He couldn't enter into the promised land. Well, we should not presume upon God's kindness to us, but instead we should live in covenant faithfulness with him. Yeah, looking at the at this story of Moses striking the rock and you know being 
judged for it, not allowed to go in the promised land. I just think you've got Moses talked with God, you know, face to face, plain as day, spent days and days with him up on the mountain. And it's like people can still drive you that crazy that you lose it. Even when you're that close to God, it doesn't matter. That's how human he is, and that's how human all of us are. Like, no matter how how close to God we are and how much we walk with him, it's like stuff is still going to trip us up and we're still going to blow it, you know? Yeah, he did this immediately after God spoke to him. Yeah. Right? So our Christian life, we might say, isn't about a one-time encounter with God once a week, um, and then we go about and do what we want, but it's taking God's word with us and putting it into action wherever we go. You can tell me if this is stupid. What do you think about this? So Moses, who's identified with the law being given, was Moses wasn't enough to bring the people into the promised land. They needed Joshua or a Joshua to bring them into the land. I like that. Like that? I like it. I think that's great. Um, I think that's right on. I And I don't know that, of course, we'd say that's the only thing that's going on here. And there are other images we could we could um, draw from this, right? If Paul equates the rock to Christ and Christ the rock is struck so that we might have life, these sorts of things, we can, we can grab onto those. But I really do like that idea. And maybe we'll pick it up more in Deuteronomy where uh, the lawgiver uh, does not ultimately lead them into the land. Did you read that somewhere or did you come up with that on your very own self? Oh, I don't remember. I'm sure I read it somewhere. Oh, come on. Take some credit. No. Come on. All of my thoughts are original. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct, I think. There is no debate to that. We (laughs) believe you. I mean, Aaron dies. That's a big deal. I don't have anything to say about it other than it's noteworthy that he died and his son takes up the priesthood. Now, um, there's not really much detail about Aaron's death. I mean, they go up on a mountain, think that they're all kind of aware, like, hey, we're going up here because Aaron's going to die. Is this a similar situation, um, like you mentioned with Moses, that he seemed to be in good health and everything? I mean, was this kind of a hey, Aaron's fine, but he needs to go up on the mountain and die now because this is part of his judgment for his disobedience. It's really hard to say, isn't it? I mean, we assume Moses is older than Aaron. Um, I I would assume, maybe not. We don't know. It seems like he was the only boy. Either that or Aaron's at least way older, like two to four years older than Moses, right? I think because he would have been free from the pharaohs kind of kill all the young babies. Mm. Um, I don't know what to say about that. Other than it just seems like this is a predicted death and Aaron goes up to the top of the mountain and he died. I mean, I don't know what to say about that other than it happened and we aren't given a ton of details, but it seems like it's by the word of the Lord. That's that's for sure. So we move on to Numbers 21, and um, near the beginning of the chapter, 
No surprise, um, the Israelites again are very frustrated and complaining about lack of food, lack of water. Um, the food that they do have, they deem as worthless. They're sick of it. And, you right. know. It, they have food, right? right? It's not that they don't have food. They're just not happy about it. Right. It's not the food they want. Exactly. I guess they're getting sick of, you know, manna cuisine seven days a week. So uh, they're complaining. They're grumbling. And um, so the Lord, uh, he's not thrilled with that. He sends serpents um, as judgment. and Fiery serpents. Fi- yeah, what, is that, what does that mean? Fiery they're, serpents? I yep. mean, is that just venom? They're demons, definitely. What? 100%. Not to Well, speak I think it what? kind of depends on how you would translate it. But like burning snakes, CSB renders it poisonous snakes. Uh, but there's a, a note in the Christian Standard Bible that says it's probably the carpet viper. So I don't know what a carpet viper looks like, but maybe burning or fire would be descriptive of the color. Okay. Well, I'm looking them up. They're they're brown with a little bit of like orangish red on them. I mean, I assume I I didn't take it as literal fire. You know, I took it as venom or something like that. Is that probably accurate? Or, I mean, that's how the Christian Standard Bible takes it. Okay. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. What's the symbolism of once they, you know, they cry out, they want help, oh, you know, we're being judged, these snakes are taking us out because of our complaining, and the uh, remedy for it is to look at a bronze snake that Moses made. What? I'm trying to figure that out. What is that? Because God could have solved it, you know, a million and a half different ways, but that was the remedy that he chose. Like, what's the symbolism in that? The symbolism. Well, at least, you know, looking away, looking towards something else means you're not looking at what is afflicting you or the at least the servants that are probably all around you have to look towards something else to obey the command but you know there is this connection this scene here is connected to the most famous bible verse ever john 3 16 john 3 14 and 15 when jesus is talking to nicodemus he says as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up and whoever believes in him must have life eternal life so at least John makes that connection, or Jesus makes that connection, and John recounts it. And I think Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, he makes that connection too, this lifting up the Son of Man, the root of Jesse. So there's symbolism later. I don't know if the Israelites yeah. knew. They just had to obey. Because, yeah, in the, you know, the initial event here, they're essentially, I mean, the snakes are their problem, and the remedy is to look at a representation of their problem. I don't think we should probably try to figure out too much of what can't be figured out here. I don't know that there's a, a moral lesson to learn from that. Um, sometimes we want to read these texts and say, what's the takeaway? But sometimes there isn't a precise takeaway that lines up with every feature of of the story. So um, there's this Parks and Rec episode where um, the the city manager 
super happy runny guy, Chris Traeger, Chris Traeger is having essentially a midlife crisis and he starts hanging out with Ron Swanson and Ron is letting him hang out with him as he's building things. He's building a bed and, and Chris thinks like everything that Ron says and everything he says about the wood and how you build something is like this parable for life. And Ron eventually tells him, that's not what's going on here. I'm just showing you how to build something. And I think sometimes we read the Old Testament that way, where we look for every little thing to mean something, and there's got to be something we can learn from that minute detail. And that's maybe not really the case. Um, But of course, as AJ's mentioned, the thing that we learn from it is that just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and we look to him and find life and healing. So I think that's the takeaway point I would want is, look, we we have problems, we are unfaithful, we're rebellious, and we reap God's judgment because of it. But ultimately, we need to look at Jesus who took on God's judgment and our sin and gives us life. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's missing what you're trying to get at, but... Uh, I think that's that's what we want to do with it. I think what you said is right. I still kind of want to try to find meaning in the symbolism of it. Okay, let me give you some meaning to find in the symbolism in a later text. In 2 Kings 18, Israelites started to worship this bronze serpent that was on the pole. And, and it righteously ends up being destroyed because instead of worshiping the God who saved them— they tried to turn into the things that God used into an idol, and they worshiped that instead. So I think maybe what we can say is God gives lots of means of grace in our lives. He gives us lots of good things that lead to our flourishing, and sometimes we can direct our attention to those and worship them instead of the God who gives them, instead of the God who heals us. We, we worship all these other things that make our life meaningful. Does that work? Yeah. Does that scratch the itch you're looking for? Uh, I mean, I think that's a good part of it, but uh, I think I'm going to keep scratching around. You still want to know, like, why was it a fiery serpent or a bronze serpent? Like, what? Why couldn't it be? I guess. Why couldn't it be a dove or something? Like, what? Is I, that right? I could be. Maybe there is nothing there, and maybe I'm just completely wrong. But like, he chose to do it that way, like for a reason. Like he could have done it anyway. Like why is that why is it that specific detail? Like is that just supposed to be meaningless? I guess I that's what, what Well, I mean, probably people have written on this who know way more than me, but I think it's maybe no different than trying to say what's the what's the moral we should take away from the ground opening up. Maybe there isn't a lesson for us about the ground opening up. Maybe it's a lesson about God's judgment. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, it could be both, though. Yeah. It could be. And if there's a plausible conclusion, that would be great. But I just don't know what the criteria would be to arrive at that. Okay, here you go. The copper snake or the bronze snake, the redness of it suggests atonement. And so when people look toward it, the red hue of the copper snake conveyed the idea of atonement. And that's what you can take from that. How's that? I mean, that's one plausible idea. Nope, that's it. Let's move on. Well, you See, that's, that's the kind of it. thing that I think we need to exercise some restraint in. I'm trying to give him something. 
And I appreciate that. I think what Matthew's looking for is a moral lesson of like, if you are struggling with eating too much food, what you should do is take a picture of that food and hang it up and think about all the reasons why this food is bad for you and don't eat it. Is that what you're looking for? Uh, no. Okay. Um, no, I don't think so, but I don't, I, I don't know what I think. That's why I'm trying to figure it out. It's just so, it's so weird. Yeah. It's like, it could have been, could have been it. He, he could have solved the problem literally any way, but that was the way that was chosen. They had to look at a bronze image of what was destroying them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Uh, go to the river and click your heels three times and splash water in your face, and then you're healed from the venom. You know, it could have been anything. Yeah, and I yeah, guess it could have I'm been God saying, Moses, as long as your staff is raised in the air, people will be recovering from the venom, and as soon as your arms fall down, they'll start to succumb to it again. Right. So get a couple guys to raise your arms. I, I just don't think we can get into God's playbook and, and figure out why is he having them do it this way. Uh, it's, it's like, why are there going to be bulls that are sacrificed instead of turtles? You know, it's like, these are questions that we could ask endlessly. And then we could ask, well, what do we learn about the fact that it's a bull being sacrificed? Well, these are, these are tough questions and maybe there are answers there, but I just don't, I don't have them. That's okay. I don't either. I just like thinking about it. And I think what we're seeing on display here is a positive application from the sermon on Sunday about reading the Bible with care and curiosity. And I think you're reading with great curiosity. I think that's really good. I think I read a, I read this donkey story within the last few months prior cuz I've been I've been I was before we started this that at the donkey story. At the end of last year, probably through like November December, I was poking around a lot in the Old Testament reading random passages. And uh, the donkey, the donkey one was one of them because that was very interesting. Aaron, what's it supposed to mean that the donkey talks? What are we supposed to draw from that? Actually, I'm kind of kidding. The, well, so Balaam was supposed to be the seer, like he's this prophet, this you know, this guy that sh- should be able to see the future or see see well, and the fact that he couldn't see the angel in the way and it had to be his donkey who kept getting out of the way because the donkey was the one who could actually see, you know, I think there's some, some irony there. Yeah. That's significant. Yeah. That's, that's a hump. Would you say that's a, um, like a humbling event? That's why that took place was because he was too prideful and looking at the wrong things and, you know, his, his thoughts and motives and heart were in the wrong spot and, the thing that saw it correctly was a donkey, which is very low on the totem pole compared to a, what was he, a priest or something, or a, a seer? A pagan priest, possibly. Oh, we, he was pagan? He's from the east. We don't know. Oh, I thought this was like a, a god guy. Well, he's a pagan guy? I, I think it's unclear whether or not he was a good guy or bad guy type. Oh. Right? Like, the, the bad guy wants him to curse Israel. We know that. So and it seems like he would be willing to if the, money. the spiritual power he felt he was in touch with uh, allowed him to, and he kept getting an answer from the Lord that he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's, you know, there are so many interrelated themes here, the, the theme of seeing, but then also the theme of speaking, 
right? Uh, you have this guy who's supposed to only speak the word the Lord gives him, and then you interact with this donkey that, uh, you know, apparently is uh, permitted to speak. Um, and it, I think, is intending to show God's power over uh, his prophets, right? Yeah. I mean, he got rebuked by a donkey. That's supposed to be humbling, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a weird day. That's the kind of thing you write home about. Yeah. Instead of looking at all of our reading in Mark for this week, I just want to draw our attention to the fact that in most of our Bibles, in Mark 16, 9 and beyond, you'll notice that there's a parenthetical note that says some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16, 8. And the point is that 16, 9 and later are probably in addition to the book of Mark. So there's question about whether or not this is actually part of the Bible. Uh, but because there's such a long history of it being included in translations, it's included in ours as well. It's just set off from, from this section. Now, I'm interested in your guys' perspective as just kind of normal church members. What does this do for you uh, when you when you read that the earliest manuscripts don't include this portion? How does it make you feel about the ending of the book of Mark. I think there, if there's something else strange in the book of Mark, I guess we do have people being referenced to pick up servants and eating the poison or something. But um, if there was some crucial verse about a doctrine that, that we hold dear, then maybe that would be something to question. But I think Jesus appearing to people, to disciples, that's consistent with, with other accounts. And so I don't think there's anything to... Is there similar references? I mean, I should probably know this, but I don't. Is there similar references to these three small sections in other Gospels? Or is this the only um, book where these actions are spoken of? Well, I think AJ mentioned that these features are present in the other Gospel accounts, maybe with some slight details missing, uh, but... Pretty generally, this information could be found elsewhere. Okay. I mean, I think it's interesting. Who who added it? They don't know? We don't know? Well, probably people who were copying manuscripts uh, added it. There could have been a variety of reasons, but one of them could have just been that maybe a scribe was copying the manuscript and thought, man, someone forgot to put the ending on the here because it just ends so abruptly and the other Gospels end with an ascension uh, So in a Great Commission. So we should grab onto that and add it on here. Uh, you know, that could be a reason. Maybe, maybe a scribe thought someone else had failed to do their job and finish it. Maybe there were individuals who just were dissatisfied with the fact that it ended so abruptly and so they wanted the fuller picture and added it on there. Uh, we don't really know. There are good explanations for how it came about, but ultimately Christians added it. It's interesting that it's included, though. Like, if there, we have pretty strong evidence that it wasn't original. Even early church fathers didn't have knowledge of it. Why is it? Why is it here for us today? Like, why? It's, it's, it seems kind of strange. Yeah, we'll encounter that again in John. Uh, there's a section that's in our English Bible, but bracketed out where it says most early manuscripts don't include this. 
Um, is and that the woman's sins when G- or the he writes yeah the sins th- when the he's accusers. drawing on the ground yeah. I think um, yeah it's it's curious should we include this in the Bible should we not and if you remember when Josh preached through the Gospel of Mark he did not preach this text and with the way that we do our preaching cycles it probably just wasn't noticeable because he had been preaching through Mark you know pretty slowly and he'd be up for six weeks or so, and then he'd be off-cycled. And he'd end it here and just never picked it up again. And I, I don't think he really commented on it. But we kind of talked about it in-house, and I think we concluded that, well, obviously, he would not preach it. And I think that I probably would, with the caveat that it's probably not original. And this is why. I think it's hard for us to uh, be able to distinguish between when the canon was open and closed. And obviously, whoever added this, whatever groups or people did, it's a tradition that's been carried on in the Christian tradition for a really long time, and it's shaped the Christian church. And it's something that I think we should be aware of. So I think that I would preach it, even though I recognize it's probably not canonical, but it's communicating a canonical message. So I would probably include it, but point out this is not original to Mark, but it's what Mark's readers took up and it's what they concluded his message with. I think because it's had such an impact on the Christian community, we leave it in there and just note. So should we have the additions to Esther put back in because they've really formed the way people think about that book today? Well, I think they've formed the way people think about it, but no one really has been so daring as to add them into standard English translations of the Bible. So I would say even though they've been formative, they have not been authoritative uh, or at least not recognized as such. So that sets it very different than the ending of Mark. And it goes into a big debate about should we have the LXX as our canonical Bible or the Hebrew text? And, And that's a tough one. Our final chapter in our New Testament reading was Luke chapter 1, and if you were like me when you were growing up, and if you grew up in a Christian home and your family was going to read the Christmas story before opening presents on Christmas, you crossed your fingers and hoped that it was not going to be Luke's edition because it is so long. What a long chapter, and uh, that's what we read for our reading this week. And uh, we have some important texts. Zechariah's prophecy ends it. We have Mary's praise, often referred to as Mary's Magnificent. Uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not. Um, Magnificant, probably. Uh, where her, She has her song that really mirrors a lot of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. Uh, but really an excellent text that gives a full description of Jesus' birth. We went through this youth Bible class. I made them go through this, looking for the connections to the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, excellent. What significant connections did you guys observe? Well, I mean, this is offspring, right? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Yeah, so anyway, we see Abraham mentioned, and so that's the the key thing there. And then we see that John will be the the forerunner to the, the the true offspring of the woman. So, And we see the word covenant, too, so... Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like, hmm. 
Yeah, in Mary's song, she points out that God has remembered Israel, his mercy to Abraham and his offspring or his seed forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And then next next time, we'll kind of get into Luke 3, where there's the reverse genealogy that starts right. working backwards in history instead of like Matthew's genealogy, which starts at the beginning and works its way down to Jesus, that connects Jesus through David to Abraham all the way to Adam a son of God. So these things are are significant, and I look forward to talking about them in future weeks. This podcast is a part of the ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or the church, please visit resurrectionmn.org.